This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 97. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Hey there, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is Session 97 you're actually listening to, in case you thought you were listening to any other episode. It is brought to you by our friends over at Gearslets.com, Focal Monitors, Universal Audio, and Audio Technica. Really great to be back with you. I'm super excited because we are just ever so much closer to episode 100. November 18th, we will be streaming a live interview with Stephen Hart and Cookie Marenko from 25th Street Studios in Oakland from 5 to 7 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. Afterwards, we will be having a party. So if you're in the Bay Area and you'd like to be at the party, of course, plan on being there, 7 o'clock. There's going to be beer, wine, there's going to be a pizza truck, and uh, it's just going to be a a free-for-all party at that point. The interview section is going to be invite-only, of course, because we have limited room and we need to squeeze, you know, just the right amount of people in the right space, and uh, that's how that's going to work. But if you... um, want to see the interview, you want to watch the interview, listen to the interview, you can tune in. We're going to be providing details, of course, for that. So you can, of course, join us. And we'll be having some giveaways and talking to the sponsors. Uh, The next couple weeks, we're orchestrating a few ideas and a few uh, giveaways that I think you're going to enjoy. So that's going to be it. WCA 100. Now, that show comes out on a Friday So it's going to be a little confusing because you'll go to get your regular show on Monday and then you'll go, hey, there's no show. But if you look, there'll be a blog announcement and uh, there'll be details about where you can stream the show. So it'll be super simple. You'll just be without a show on Monday. And of course, I'll provide you with one on Friday. But then I will actually provide you with yet another show the following Monday, which will be WCA 101. How about that? So Oh, and before I I forget, uh, make sure and sign up on the email list because, you know, I go to the email list when I go to choose prizes, especially for the WCA 100 show. I'm going to, of course, go to that email list to choose prizes for those that are outside the Bay Area, local Bay Area residents. We will have some giveaways, of course, but, you know, for those that listen far and away from the Bay Area, we need to, of course, consider them. So make sure you sign up on the email list. It's on the Working Class Audio site. It's on the front page. Just head on over there and, uh, yeah, make sure you sign up. I'd love to love to be able to pull your name out of the hat and uh, have you win a prize, of course. So let's talk about today's show, WCA number 97. Today I have on Mr. Matt Ross Spang, who is from Memphis, Tennessee, and got his start at the age of 16 going to work at Sun Studios in Memphis, Tennessee. And uh, Matt and I sat down over a conversation over Skype and uh, chat about that journey because he's, of course, no longer at Sun, and he's no longer 16, of course. He's uh, gone on to greener pastures and, of course, is much older at this point. But uh, not too much older, Matt. It's okay. You're not an old man yet, if you're listening. So, uh, yeah, Matt Ross Spang coming up here on episode 97. And before we get to our interview with Matt, I want to remind you I do have the Backblaze backup cloud service uh, affiliate link, which is on the website uh, there for you. The affiliate link means that if you click on it, you sign up, the podcast gets a kickback for that at no extra cost to you. And it's about five bucks a month. It's unlimited space. And uh, I would encourage you to sign up for the full year at once so you don't have to worry about it. 
And it just gives you some peace of mind. So not only will it back up all of the USB drives connected to, or all your drives connected to your computer, but it will also track your computer uh, location-wise. So if it were ever stolen and the thief were ever to log onto the internet, it would immediately pick up on its location, which would be another layer of peace of mind. Um, for me, I've got a couple Drobos, and one of those Drobos, the, those are raids, and one of those, of course, backs up to Backblaze continually, all the time, whatever I throw at it, it's always backing up. So, yeah, Backblaze, check it out. It's on the right-hand side of the page. Isn't everything on the right? Well, most of everything is on the right-hand side of the page, except for the interviews. So uh, that's it. So let's get to the interview. Speaking of that, Mr. Matt Ross Spang here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Welcome to the podcast. It's good to have you here, and it's been uh, a plan of mine to have you on. And so your Facebook message that you sent me was well-timed. Your last name, I want to clarify so I'm not messing it up. It's Ross Spang, yeah. right? Yeah, the hyphen's okay. silent. <laughs> <laughs> thank you for clarifying yeah the whole time i've been going ross hyphen <laughs> it's funny having a hyphenated name because you, you realize how many people in this world don't know what a hyphen is and they'll do an apostrophe or like asterisk it's the it's kind of mind-blowing how many people don't know what a hyphen is that's very peculiar and I, I may have be i may have been one of those people had i not had that name but <clears throat> So is that a combination of your mom and dad's name? Yeah, they are kind of hippies. They thought it'd be fun to combine their names. So their names are hyphenated too. So. Oh, okay. But now it's, you know, now it's way more common, I've noticed. Oh, it's more super cool doing it. So you're from Memphis. I'm from Memphis. You grew up in Memphis. Grew up in Memphis, yes, sir. I want to jump right into this because I saw it in your bio. You started at Sun Studios at 16. I uh, recorded there when I was 14. My, uh, you know, I've played guitar with some people and, uh, it was really bad, really bad, bad. I mean, my parents, the goal for us was we knew we were bad. I think we knew, like, we were bad. We're not going anywhere. But the goal was to always get in the studio. That was, like, you know, which I, we couldn't wait to do. And S Son, at that time, you could rent it by the hour. And uh, my parents bought me two hours of studio time when we were, like, 14 or 15. So we get in there, and we we go record with the guy. And that's when I fell in love with the studio. I saw the guy working the board. And uh, just he just showed us a great time and treated us like we were actually good musicians and stuff. I mean, we recorded something awful. It's it probably he was probably miserable for two hours, but I just enjoyed every minute of it. And I bugged him about it, and he told me to come back and intern with him sometime. And my cousins actually ran the studio, and so when I was sixteen, they offered me a job as a tour guide during the day because Sun gives, gives tours during the day. So from like after high school, from about three to six, I would give tours of the studio. And then starting about 6.30, I was a, the assistant in the in, at night and interning in the studio. And then I worked my way up. Was that challenging to get in there in that position? When I first recorded there, there wasn't an assistant. So the guy was like, you should come back and intern with, intern with me when you can drive. And when I did start working there, there was an assistant. And he left and went to um, the conservatory, I think, in, is it in Arizona? Oh, yeah. Uh, he left and went to that. And then I got to become the assistant. And I stayed there for... I worked my way up to being the main engineer. So I was there for about 11 years. Wow. So. That's amazing. Starting that young. Yeah. I've just, I've always been, felt that I was really blessed with that, that I knew what I wanted to do at an early age and got to do it. So. And you were doing the tours first, right? Yeah. Start off as a tour guide. And uh, I, I was about three or four months into that, I became the assistant. So it was, you know, so we, I would start at three and then go all 
all through the night, basically. But being a tour guide, really, I tell us this people, it really helped becoming an engineer because at Sun, you get people from all over. You get people from England, Japan, France, Africa, everywhere. And none of them, all of them speak English, and you're supposed to, you know, give them a tour because it's a personal tour. So I'm talking to 50 people at a time and trying to entertain them and and kind of put take them on an emotional ride, which is very much what the studio is. You know, you have to be welcoming. You have to get people to relax. You have to get people to open up and laugh and do all these things. And so being a tour guide for all walks of life really helped, I think, in the studio to... Uh, to being a people person and being uh, welcoming and stuff. Yeah, and at an early age, getting an exposure to to uh, cultures uh, other than American culture. Yeah, you know, you would joke uh, if someone came in from Memphis, you know, you said, do you want to see the stu- tour? And they said, oh, no, I live here. And you go, okay, but did you see, have you seen the studio? No, I haven't. Like, you know, and then someone saved up their whole life from France to come, you know, to Memphis for three days, you know, so... It's those people really. I mean, Memphians appreciate it too, but you know, from overseas, this is like the dream to come to Sun, to come to Memphis. You know? Yeah, you spent eleven years there, so from sixteen to twenty-seven. Yeah, tell me about the highlights of the key points of what you learned that stick with you to this day. Really, it's uh, about Sun. You know, it's, there's no there's no ISO booths. It's everyone live in a room. Uh, and I spent the last couple of years of there trying to put in the same equipment that Sam had back in the day because we were pretty much very modern when I first started there. And, uh, you know, he recorded everything live to mono with four tracks, and it sounded amazing. And we had 24 tracks, and I couldn't get it to have a sound. So I started trying to reverse engineer it. But really learning how to record people in one room uh, with no isolation is a big help. You know, learning about microphone patterns and how to just, move things in the room and balance people in the room and volume in the room was a big lesson. Uh, You know, people come to Sun and they're immediately freaked out. They're supposed to play their song and perform and they don't make it easy because they put pictures of Johnny Cash and Elvis staring at you in the room where rock and roll is created. So really learning how to, to, to get people to relax and open up and be able to perform in rather in a short amount of time. Uh, I learned a lot from that too, as opposed to just people coming in and and just like you know, all right, I'm ready, go ahead and go. Like I've learned how to like talk to them for a little bit, and we hang out for a minute, and then we start the recording process where they can actually get something they want to keep. So that was a big deal too. Uh, I think I learned from that place. So you're not only the people skills you learned giving the tours, but the people skills you learned actually making people feel comfortable in in a very historical uh very important place in music history yeah uh, was was also uh, a skill you acquired yeah and in being fast i mean we the the tours of the, within at the day every day at 6 p.m and we could get in there about 6 30 and i can't set up beforehand so when the band's showing up that's when i'm i'm setting up as the band's setting up so i have to be able to get sounds I can't take two hours or half a day to set up and get sounds because then it's midnight and, we're, and we have to tear down every night. We had to tear down for the most part every night. So I had to learn to be fast. Like, all right, we're going to get drums and bass and we're going to get this whole sound together in like 30 minutes and we're going to cut. So it really got me fast to now like 
when I go to Nashville or some other place, I've never had an assistant, you know, so we go and we, we sit up the day before and we have an assistant and then we like, we only check one thing at a time. You know, the drums come at noon, the bass comes at one or like, I was not used to that at all. I go, I can't check it till I hear everybody together. You know, that's what I was used to. Cause I need to hear how the drums play off the guitar in the room, how the bass, blah, blah, blah. So that it actually freaked me out leaving Sun and doing other stuff because it was such a different thing than I'm used to. <laughs> you were like trapped back in time. I was, I was. That's interesting. Which people think about people from Memphis, I think, anyways, that we're all like... Tra- <laughs> tra- trapped in time, <laughs> moving oh, yeah. at a slower pace. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. The accent sure. always fools everybody. You have this sweet Southern accent, and realistically, people are like, oh, this person is operating at a slower tempo than I am, but realistically, yeah. that's complete bullshit. <laughs> it's a front. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with being a little slow, you know? <laughs> Um, God, it's so interesting having, you know, everybody in one room learning how to get it all together within a 30 minute period that must've affected your technique for, you know, some people like to, uh, experiment with multiple mics and I'm sure that yeah. you kind of cut to the chase and went to the known quantities and made it work quickly. Well, I love to experiment every day. You would, I would, I still experiment, you know, I, I find that the same thing doesn't work barely it, if something worked really well the last session it's definitely not going to work the next session is how it usually ends up like i'm going to leave this set up because that was killer and the next time you throw it up and you go what happened did my you know is my microphone broke and this sounds terrible so uh i actually like that part about son of tearing down every night because you know you commit to something and then you come in the next day and and it never nothing ever feels the same like it did before even if it's perfectly recalled there's something about being in the moment and how great it sounds like god these drums sound amazing and the next day you come in you bring up the faders or you turn on the speakers and you go okay that's what we had yesterday you know and and it takes you a minute to get acclimated again so i loved having to pull the microphones back out and kind of reset them where I had them and then bringing up the faders and checking things almost just, it was comforting to me and also got me back in the sound. And I might usually, I would, could beat a little bit what I had the day before. So I really like that aspect of it. Your ability to jump in and set stuff up quickly. Uh, I'm sure you are very familiar with some things that maybe somebody who's coming up at, at an early stage they get around to a little bit later. Like you, you probably became intimately familiar with the microphones, the polar patterns, how to work the polar patterns off of each other. It's it's true. I mean, and and you think about it, it is kind of multi micing because the vocal mic is also the drum mic. The guitar mic is also the drum. You know, everything tends when you're in one little room, everything tends to be some form of drum mic. And so, yeah, I did get really used to the certain microphones and the polar patterns and knowing the room where bass frequencies are collecting or where mid range is happening and stuff. And I just got to know that room inside and out and uh, know the microphones inside and out where I could do do different things but it wasn't it was never a big setup you know it was usually under like 12 microphones or so we didn't have a lot of inputs back then but also you can't really put too many microphones in there because the minute you bring the vocal mic up the drums get pushed to a side or the guitar gets pushed because it's all bleeding into the vocal mic so you're kind of you know at some point you could do all these close mic things but it won't matter because you need to have the vocal loud and then it's putting everything back you know so it's trying to find that balance of that and it's and that's still with me today. I don't really do too many mics on stuff, even when I have the opportunity. Am I correct? Is the drum set always set up at Sun? Uh, there's an old '60s Lugwood that's kind of in in one spot, but people always bring their 
drum kits in too. So inevitably, but the drums usually stay right in front of that glass. Uh, and part of the reason I kept it there is because the front room, I'm, you've been to Sun, so there's that front little office. No, I've, I've never been. Oh, oh, you've never been? Oh, well, I told you you got to come to Memphis. See, uh, that's why I'm going to come there. Uh, Sun was only three rooms, and the front was this little office, this weird-shaped office with like a tin roof and glass. So, you know, front it's a front-facing street uh, building, so there's glass on one side, and it's got some buzzy neon, but you open the door, and just the drums bleeding through that room sounds incredible. It's it's kind of like when the levee breaks. I know everyone says that sound, but it's that big roomy drum sound. And so just having the drums by that door with the door open and throwing a 57 or a, a ribbon or something in there, it sounds huge. So a lot of times we'd keep the drums over there just strictly to get that good room bleed. Hmm into the front room. I just want to go there and make drum samples. Oh, yeah. I, we got a lot of offers, and I always told them no. <laughs> that time you spent there, eventually uh, you became the engineer. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. I was the head main engineer for about five or six years or so. I think I became the main engineer in 2009 or 10. Okay. Um, the longtime engineer had been there about... The guy I learned from was James Lott. He was an amazing guy. He was there for about 25 years, and he retired. And I took over. Were you scared to take over? Was it a feeling of big responsibility? No, I'd been there for a long time and I had some really things I wanted to do, like bring in the old equipment, go back to recording the tape and using the old microphones and doing that kind of stuff. It, I wouldn't want to ever take someone's job. So if, if it was like, you know, we want you to take over him, blah, blah, I would have not done that. But he was leaving, you know, so it was a natural progression. And so I was happy to do that uh, and excited to do that. I'm not really clear how the how the business is structured uh, in terms of like if you wanted to bring in the old equipment, did you have to run that by anybody? Yeah, I talked to the owners and I said this is what I like to do, and and we could sell some of these pieces, but we need to buy the studio hadn't really been um, upgraded in a long time and had been kind of running off this old stuff. And uh, the, when I started there, we were using sonar. You know, we didn't even have Pro Tools. Had some weird kind of issue things and. Uh, I wanted to bring in this certain level of equipment, these certain things. So I talked to them and said, I'd like you guys to buy this stuff. I'm going to buy some of this stuff myself and put in there like the crazy stuff. So I bought the old RCA tube console from 1936. <laughs> That's four in, mono out. I bought the old Presto lathe because I wanted to learn how to cut. And it, and I felt like it's it was my... I'm the only one that was going to use it. If, if Should I ever leave, the next guy probably doesn't want to record five, four tracks live to mono. So I shouldn't put that on the studio, but I, I'm that crazy. So I bought that kind of stuff. And they bought like the big useful things like the Pro Tools rig and the console and, you know, outboard gear and stuff like that. So we had a, a nice little, but they were totally cool with it. They totally believed in the idea and everything about it. So they were great. Was it your goal to bring it back to what it was in the original days? Uh, Kind of like a, a amalgamation. I don't want it to be a, just a time capsule that only that only like rockabilly people want to record at or people who want to sound like Johnny Cash or something. I want it to be where anybody could come use it. But I had it because Sam Phillips was a love technology. If Sam Phillips were around today, he'd be loving Pro Tools. You know, it's not like he'd be the still going live to mono on the four, on the quarter inch machine. He loves stuff as long as it got the performance. If it's performance altering, he probably wouldn't care for it as much. But um, he always said, if you're not doing something different, you're not doing anything at all. And I always that always kind of stuck in my head. So I wanted to have the ability to pull from the from that old era and and nothing sounds as good as a old RCA ribbon microphone through an old RCA pre I mean it just sounds 
incredible no matter what decay you're trying to be or sound like or do but also have modern stuff like the pro i had pro tools and i I went to a radar i love a radar rig and then i had we had a we bought a studer console a really cool old 60s studer console so i had you know uh, 20 channels of that um and we would just kind of depend on the session and the sound and what the client wanted and what i felt like doing we would do an amalgamation of all those things. When did Sam Phillips die? He died in 2003. He was 80. And so you had exposure to him. I never got to meet Sam. Mm. No. I've, I always wish I could have met him. Uh, I'm very good friends with his family. He's got two sons, Jerry and Knox, who are great engineers, who uh, own and operate the Phillips, Sam Phillips Recording Service, which is where I'm doing this interview now. But they're still the Phillips family is just uh, the rock and roll royalty, man. Whenever they when they walk into a room, the whole as Jim Dickinson would say, the DNA of the room changes. You know, everyone just kind of gravitates towards them, and it's all from Sam. It's all passed down. I can imagine. So you spent your time there. You you put in. I mean, what a place to come of age as a recording yeah, engineer. Yeah. So why did you leave? I've been there 11 years. I grew up there. I feel like I did everything that I wanted to do at Sun. I made this great record on this artist, Margot Price. We did the whole record live in three days to no headphones. And it hadn't come out yet, but I just knew like that was like the thing. That's my kind of, I felt like the best thing I ever did at Sun. It's this crowning achievement kind of thing. Like it sounds amazing. The performances are amazing. She's incredible talent. And, um, I didn't want to be pigeonholed. I, I met you at Potluck, and we and I we speak at a lot of these things. And I'm always was always kind of known as the Sun Studio guy. And I didn't want to. I don't know how to best say. It. I just didn't want to be pigeonholed in this one thing because I love to do all types of recording. I love to do modern sounds. I do, do all these things. And and I've been there for 11 years. I you can only record at night, no matter what happens. So if we got a big offer from somebody, you know, that wants to book the studio for two weeks or something, we can only start at night at six o'clock. So that really. You know, if a bigger artist wants to come in, they want to be, you know, the studio to themselves. They don't want to tear down all these things. So I, I feel like I was going to, I was missing out on some really cool gigs hmm. because of the tour situation. And um, I had thought about leaving for a while. I wasn't sure how I was going to do it. And I got a call from this great producer, Dave Cobb, who said he liked my work and heard some stuff I did and asked if I would engineer a session for him at Fame. Uh, for this kid, Anderson East, who's really talented. So it was just a one-day session. I get down there, we set up, and we get sounds, and we start recording, and it's fame. It sounds amazing. And uh, Dave looked over to me about an hour in and said, man, this sounds great. Do you want to do the next Jason Isbell record with me? Which I love the Southeastern record they did together. And uh, I love Jason Isbell, and I love Dave's work. And I, I was like, yeah, I'd love to, you know, and that's all I could think about the rest of the session pretty much. And I, you know, I didn't get my hopes up because people say stuff, but he called back two days later and said, I want you to do this. It's the whole month of March. Can you do it? And I was the, not only was I the engineer at Sun, I was the operations manager. So it's hard for me to be gone for a lot of time. And I, had I, I think I should fail to mention, but Sun was super busy. I worked, I think the last year, full year I was there, I worked 336 days or something in the studio on top of managing, so it was oh. 70, 70 hour weeks or something. And uh, <sighs> the only time I had off that that year, I actually went to Canada and made another record. But I've been doing that. I've been going really hard at it for a long time. I knew if I did not do this Jason Isbell record, I'd regret it for the rest of my life. And uh, I'm, every person that's ever quote unquote made it has made some kind of huge jump or sacrifice. 
And even Sam Phillips, Sam, Sam had a great job as a radio engineer at the Peabody, this really fancy hotel in Memphis. He recorded big band music for radio. It was a very prestigious, well-paying job. And he left that to start a little studio that he built himself that was the first recording studio in Memphis to record black artists, which in 1950, no one was doing and did not exactly sell a bunch of records. You know, it was he was... He was going from a very prestigious, well-paying jo- job to something that may not work out at all. And he had two kids and a wife and a deaf new aunt living in his house. And he just followed his dream. And it turned out to be amazing. So I always thought about that. What if Sam had just stayed at the Peabody? You know, we wouldn't have rock and roll like we do today. So I, I thought about it for maybe about two hours. I knew exactly what I was going to do. Uh, they wouldn't let me go for the session. So I told him I, I was putting in my would end up being like a you know a two month notice or something, but I left just for this one album, and uh, it's been just amazing ever since. So, so you just you came to that crossroads, and you could have buckled and just stayed in place, but you really chose yeah. to you know go down the the path or the road road less traveled, I should say. Definitely, and uh, I'm I loved my time at Sun. I still miss recording there, and it was a great job. It was I say it was the hardest and the easiest decision. It was hard because I love that place so much, and I grew up there, and I put my heart and soul into that control room and that room, trying to do something with it unique. And um, but at the same time, um, I feel like I got really good in that room, and I I didn't know, you know, when you only work in one room and with certain microphones, you can be amazing. But how am I in some other room? How am I on the spot somewhere else? And I knew if I did this and did other things outside of my comfort zone. I'll become a better engineer. So I really wanted to better myself. I wanted to challenge and stuff. So all these things kind of played into it. Did you pick your successor? Uh, no. I had an idea of who I'd like to take my place, and he wanted to do it too, but the ownership had different ideas. There was a guy who worked there that used to work at Ardent, so they chose him, and so he took over. And he's kind of done his own stamp on Sun now. I took a lot of my, I took all my gear, obviously, when I left out, and he put, you know, his, what he likes to use in there. So it's different than when I was there now in terms of uh, sonically with the with the gear. So the transition from working at a place like Sun then going to a place like Fame and working with Dave Cobb, that must have been a little bit of a leap, was that a hard uh, thing? Were you a little nervous? I wasn't nervous till I got there, and there was some issues. At, at that time, Fame, now Fame has gotten a lot of work, money and work put into it where it's it's really tightened up. But then uh, when we first went there, there, we had some issues with the console and patching and routing and all this stuff. So, I mean, it was no one's really fault. It was just learning a new room really quickly. But um, like I said before, I, I'm used to getting sounds and stuff really quickly, and so I'm going to a room, I don't know, and the consoles, the patch bay is not fully laid out like you know, I'm used to seeing and stuff like that. But uh, it was fine. Dave's a great guy to work with, and uh, um, we just get along. I mean, we've, been, we've done probably 20 records or so together now, and, and he's like me. We, we like to change it up every time and do something different and stuff. So it was, I'd say it was a fairly easy transition. It was just getting used to different um, other people's time, really, because I was on my time, I was on my schedule, you know, which is fast and doing these things. And so it's learning this other, setting up the day before and doing the little things like that. All right, I hope you're enjoying the interview here with Matt Ross Spang on the Working Class Audio Podcast. I want to take a sponsor break with Audio Technica for a bit and just remind you that the uh, time is running out on the uh, Audio Technica rebate program for the Artist Series mics. So at the top, Always on the right-hand side of the page, I know, because that's where all of the uh, the banners are. So if you click on the, the very first banner there, it's the Artist Series Rebate 
uh, banner with the Artist Series mics on it, of course, from Audio-Technica. So if you click on that banner, uh, you can get over to the documentation that walks you through it. They're doing $30, $20, and $15 rebates on a variety of Artist Series mics. So uh, if you're in the market, do that before the end of the year because it expires on December 31st of this year. So there it is. And if you're uh, not in the market for the Artist Series mics, just check out the Audio-Technica website. That's audio-technica.com. So let's get back into it here with Mr. Matt Ross Spang here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. So you have your son time, and then you, you transition into doing these records with Dave Cobb. There's something new that you're doing right now that you're starting up that you've been asked to do that is of also huge historical importance, and that's the uh, the Elvis uh, recordings. Is that right? Yeah. Tell me about that. Yeah, it's been fun. Well, yeah, it's been a great year. I uh, was working at, out of RCAA, and, and uh, of course, Ben Folds 5, you know, they, they used to, well, Ben, ben Folds, not the 5, but he used to rent, rent RCAA, and I was in there working, and his manager is this awesome um, gal, Sharon Corbett House, and she knows Rob Santos at Sony Legacy, and he had mentioned he was looking for someone to mix some unreleased Elvis stuff, and she recommended me, and uh, we I talked to Rob, and it didn't look like our schedules were going to get together because we're both pretty busy. And we had this one window open up and he asked where I'd like to mix it at. And I said, Sam Phillips recording service in Memphis is this incredible studio that Sam built after sun that I've, I've put most of my gear in now where I like to make a lot of records when I'm producing. And if, if I have a choice as an engineer and he said, he's always wanted to do a project here. So he came down and we mixed, uh, about 18 to 20 unreleased Elvis tracks that in in 76, uh, Elvis got tired of going to Nashville to record. So, and he had done a record at American. So he told RCA he wanted to record at the Jungle Room in Graceland. So they actually bought a bread truck, turned it into a mobile recording studio, tried to drive it down to Memphis. The truck broke down in Jackson, which there's nothing in Jackson really. And they towed the truck to Graceland and they recorded a lot of his last recordings in the jungle room with the whole band set up. And so I mixed 18 unreleased tracks from that. And that he had some hits out of there, Danny Boy, uh, Moody Blue, She Th- she Thinks I Still Care. All these great songs were cut in that room. So I got to mix the B-sides and alternate takes and stuff like that. And since then, I've mixed um, probably four or five more albums for him. I'm actually I'm in the middle of one right now. Uh, working for him. So it, that's been incredible getting to work with Elvis. Tell me about the process of mixing this this project. The tapes have already been transferred to digital, but we're mixing analog. And Phillips here has uh, three amazing echo chambers, three of the most amazing chambers I've ever heard. I have a couple of old EMT plates I've parked in here. And of course, we've got all the tape echo we could ever want. So I'm not doing too much to them. I, I'm, I'm leaving, the, the performances are amazing. I'm just kind of, Uh, doing a little touch-up EQ or filtering here or there, and mostly it's just a lot of volume rides. Uh, I I don't really EQ or compress too much. I do a lot of automation to make... I feel like I could EQ some, but just making it, riding it, makes it sit in the track better. And that that goes for anything, not just the Elvis stuff. So mostly it's just me. uh, Most stuff is 16-track tape, but it's 14 tracks or so. So it's just adding a couple tasteful effects and then just riding the volumes of everybody. What an amazing gig. Yeah, it's uh, it's pretty incredible um, to hear uh, 
you know, you're working on this great track and then you solo and then there's Elvis's vocal and he just sang his heart out every time. And the cool thing was the TCB band was here while I was mixing, the guys who played on it. So Ronnie Tut and James Burton are over my shoulder while I'm, you know, that's a, if you hear, listen to the record, there's a couple of times where Burton's solo is probably a little too loud. It's because he was in the room and I wanted to goose it for him. <laughs> <laughs> wow. You're mixing it off of a DAW into a console. Yeah. I've got Radar 6, and when the Radar Studio came out, you can have Pro Tools inst- installed on Radar now, and you can just reboot and go between the two. So uh, I'll it was in Pro Tools, so I booted it up in Pro Tools and just play it back. I treat it like a tape machine, just play it back off of it, and then uh, print back to it. Is that your rig? Yeah. Yeah, I bought. I had the Radar uh, at Sun, and when I left, the new guy didn't want to use Radar. This is before Radar Studio had come out, and he wanted to use his Pro Tools rig. So I bought the Radar from Sun, when I left, because I really love that machine. I, it's a, uh, I just think the conversion sounds so good, and I love the hands-on aspect of it. Now that it's got Pro Tools, I mean, it's a souped up, super souped up mat, uh, PC that runs my. I can do my UAD plugs. I do a lot of mixing. You know, a lot of times I have to mix in the box, in which I don't mind, and um, it's got a lot of great. I can run all my favorite UAD plugs and stuff like that off of the. Uh, the radar pro tool so it's it's really not different than, than a mac except for when you're doing file management stuff that's that's the only difference mm. really well with the uad stuff are you using satellite boxes i have uh yeah i need to upgrade i've got i, I had a I've, I've made a little portable record i made this record with the sheepdogs and we went into canada and we were in a barn uh in the middle of the woods, we made a record in a barn and we brought up a radar rig. They wanted to go to tape, but we couldn't find a good tape machine. And we were, you know, a hundred miles from anyone that could even think about fixing it. So I said, let's go with a radar. Cause if we run radar, you only have 24 tracks. You can only, it's just like a tape machine. You know, there's not a lot of editing features and blah, blah, blah. And I brought up a, a UAD Apollo twin and I had a little uh, firewire satellite quad uh, that I use now. I've uh, I still have the Fire Satellite hooked up, but I need to get a Thunderbolt one at some point because it's harder to get FireWire connections going. I'm, it's pretty hit, man. It's like all in a five space rack. I have 24 in and out conversion plus the Pro Tools rig, and so I just ta- I can just take it anywhere and go make a record. Is it loud? Like, is there a fan on it? No, there's a little fan on the radar. It's not loud at all. I've done I did uh, I've done recordings in the control room. It's not been an issue, but it's expensive. Yeah, I mean, but when you think about, so here's what I say to people if they're interested in it, and it, and it's all about what you what the flow is. I mean, I made records on my little Apollo Twin and been just as happy, but I've had the Radar Six for like three or four years, and uh, I got a ten year warranty on it. I can call them anytime, get them on the phone if I have an issue. They'll overnight stuff to me. When we were making, this is a great example. We were making that Sheepdogs record in the middle of the woods of Canada. And they're a Canadian company, but we're on the opposite side. Something in the radar, we had a, we rented a radar. Something in the radar for I've never seen before went out, and we're like on right about to take a weekend break, and this radar goes out, and it's an expensive day to lose. That's our only machine. I we could do some overdubs on my Apollo Twin, but we can't full track the band. I called Barry, who designed the radar, on the phone personally. He answered the call. I explained the problem. He ran. We did some tests to see if it was this or that. It turned out to be a third-party video card was all. They overnighted a a video card to me. They also got on the phone to a guy who has a radar about two hours away, and he drove up his radar and left it with us for the whole month-long session as a backup. And I can barely get someone on Avid 
uh, on the phone or, you know, or any companies, you know, tech support, but they like made sure we were covered. And I've never really had issues before, but in Memphis, I tried to install Pro Tools or something on the radar. It wasn't happening. They have a thing now they can log on to my radar over the internet and see what's going on and fix it. I mean, it's just amazing. They helped me get my UAD stuff installed. They help do all these other things and tweak the thing for performance. So it's been really great to have that extra like tech support and um, overtime that they put into making sure you love your machine. So I think that all that all plays into it, you know. We're touching a little bit on some some gear things, and you know, you're a lone wolf. You don't have you don't have a wife and kids, right? Nope. So nope. Where do you fall on on? You've heard the show, so you know I ask. What's your thoughts on on buying gear, uh, debt, and uh, how does that work into your life? How do you make it work for you? I buy a lot of gear. I'm I'm no John McBride. But I'm probably well on my way uh, <laughs> to the the amount of gear I have. I buy. I'm a. I'm from Memphis. I'm a. If you guys know me, I'm a Memphis freak. Uh, all the records that were made in Memphis are. I'm just such a fan of. And so, and I love the history of of not just Memphis but Nashville and all these other places. So I own a lot of weird equipment that's like historically means something. Like I just bought the original Ardent console from 1966 that Big Star was cut on. ZZ Top was cut on all this, and it's a little, and it happens to be Spectrosonics, which I really love Spectrosonics equipment because uh, it was so rampant in Memphis. So I own two Spectrosonics consoles. I own the RCA console that Sam would have used back at Sun, the same type of one. So I love stuff like that. Um, I don't own a lot of outboard gear. I, I really love microphones. So my main thing is kind of microphones, and, and like we talked about, I just bought Vance's uh, Studer A80 two-track. Because I, I have a two-track, but it's an old Ampex. It's a Germanium one. It's kind of more of a time machine sound than a Studer 80, which is kind of, you know, just a great print down. But I love buying gear. I don't have any, I don't, I'm not in debt because of it. I never buy something unless I can just buy it outright. I don't like to owe people money. I don't like to make payments. I like to just buy something. Um, and I tried to only buy, besides like the radar or like an artist mix, I really love the artist mix for fate freighter rides and stuff, you know, you'll never make money off buying something like that. It's, <laughs> it'll be outdated and there'll be a new one in two years and you'll lose money, but it, it saved my life a thousand times in mixing. But I like buying stuff like an old Sony C37 mic or an old, you know, RCA ribbon. Those things are going to go up in value or hold their value. So those are good buying gear buying decisions to me. Um, if we had bought U47s, Five years ago, it would have been better than putting that money in a bank account or in a IRA. No with shit. The, the return investment now. So I think things like that are good gear purchases. Um, I buy stuff that I know I'm going to use, and if I something I'm not using, I get rid of it. I'm not precious to any piece of gear except a few little things that I just truly love. But it's all stuff that is um, sought after. It's vintage. It's going to hold its value and maybe go up in value. I don't buy a lot of new stuff. I, I like the sound of the older stuff a lot too. So that there's a reason behind it. But looking the other day, I do have a, an ungodly amount of stuff. But I've been, you know, since six, I didn't really buy stuff early on. When I was at Sun, I didn't buy a whole lot because they had such great equipment. But since I've gone independent, there's things I miss and I want that I, I'll go get. But for me, I always see, um, the value in microphones. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I do too. I think I don't think you need a whole lot of outboard gear now, um, but having a great mic selection will get you so far. And now I've bought a little few things like 
I bought a really cool old bass guitar for like a couple hundred bucks. I bought a nice old drum kit for a couple hundred bucks. And that way, I've got these things where if someone comes in and they, because a lot of people don't know tone. They're great players, but they don't know good tone. You know, so you'll have this great guitar player and he'll come in with a Framus. And you'll never get famous playing a Framus. Uh, <laughs> so I'll have a nice guitar for him. I'll have a nice amp. And I like buying those things. I get just as much fun out of other people using my stuff as I do using it. Jeff Powell, who we're both good friends with, uses my microphones all the time, and he always apologizes. But I, I'm just glad someone's using them when I'm away or not able to use them. I'm glad someone who appreciates them and gets the use out of them. So, so you have all this stuff. Do you have insurance, I have to ask? I don't have it right now. Uh, I'm I've, I'm in the midst of Vance hooked me up with his guy, and I've, I've been mean. I've talked to him on the phone. I just need to give him a list and an idea of what I want to do. Who's Vance's guy? Joe Monterello? Yeah. Okay. I, I reached out to him. He seemed really nice on the phone, but I haven't gone farther yet. The problem is my, a lot of my stuff travels, so it's even more expensive because it's not, it's not just sitting in one studio, so I have to cover f- for that. So I'm trying to f- figure out what stuff I'm going to say travels and figure out all that. I just, I've just been so busy, but I need to do that. But all my stuff is pretty much at Sam Phillips Recording Service, tucked away, and a couple things at home, a couple things in a storage unit. Is Sam Phillips Recording Service your, that's kind of like your home base now? Yeah, yeah. They're, it's, a, it's the most amazing, stu- I can't wait for you to see it. It's, um, Sam built it in 1958. It took about three years to finish. He spent $800,000, which is like $6 million today in 1950s money, and he built it from the ground up. And it's the Studio A is big and and just, but um, the most amazing sound. And it's intimate. It's big, but it's not so big you, you know, you don't feel like close together. And there's a Studio B, which is about the same size as Sun. Jeff Powell is in here cutting vinyl now. Like I said, there's three amazing echo chambers. My plate reverbs are here. The front lobby and the hall. Every, like, even the rooms that aren't really recording rooms, like the bathroom or the hallway or the lobby, I think he angled on purpose. Like, well, that could be a chamber if we need it because they all sound amazing too. And, of course, the Phillips family still owns it. So it's like, you know, you're making a record and and, uh, Sam's son Jerry comes in and he'll be like, I don't mean to produce, but what if that bass started that song? And you're like, Oh, that's perfect. You know, like, hey, what would that bass start of that song? So it's you get a lot of that, you know. So it's 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 a, I don't mean to produce. I don't mean to produce, <laughs> but uh uh if anyone can can interrupt the session or or have a comment like that, it's Jerry, you know, you're gonna listen when Jerry Phillips says it. So it's just an amazing place. Is this by coincidence or did you plan this to stay like kind of tied to the Phillips family? I did not plan it at all. And the freaky thing is that Sam started at Sun in nineteen fifty and he left about nine, quote unquote 1960, but he started coming over to Phillips about 1959, about nine, 10 years. And I was at Sun as the engineer for about 10 years before I went over to Phillips. So it's been a weird kind of uh, parallel universe in some way. But no, no, nothing is, I don't like to plan because I don't like to plan a session. I don't like to plan a project. I don't like to plan anything because, it, you know, it's going to change the day you're there. So there's no sense in worrying about it too much beforehand because. Until you get there and set up, there's no telling what's going to be, what's going to happen or what's going to change. What are some of the challenges that stick in your mind that you've had over the years? For a long time, it was my age. Uh, I think people would come in from Sun and they'd expect to see this old rockabilly cat <laughs> who cut Jerry Lewis in the you know 50s recording him. And they come here and there's this little 18-year-old jerk uh, you know, making a record on him. And so I had to overcome that 
for a long time. I don't really think of too many of the challenges because uh, what we get to do is so much fun, and we get and and it's so rewarding that I quickly forget all the negative stuff or the, you know. Uh, I have to think on that one, really. I know that age thing. I remember being at a studio many years ago in San Francisco, and this uh, acapella group came in, made up of some older gentlemen, and uh, I got the, you're the engineer? Yeah, yeah. You're, you're the, where, when's the other guy coming? <laughs> yeah, when, yeah, when's your boss coming? And, and, yeah. Oh, man, I just, I was full of piss and vinegar. I was just like... Yeah, I got you covered, yeah. buddy. When's the real singer coming? No, you can't say Yeah, that. no <laughs> <laughs> The age challenge, obviously, you've overcome because you're not 18 anymore. You're at a great spot because you're older now, you're more experienced, you're not tied down, you're truly freelancing it. At this point, do you have a manager or have you considered a manager? I, I've been... There's, I've, I've definitely considered it. I've had a couple people reach out and they just haven't felt right. Um, and there's a couple people I would be interested in, but, um, I like, I like the idea of the manager, the people reaching out to you as opposed to you picking, finding one, because I, I feel like that helps me know that you're interested and you're a go-getter, you know, and, uh, um, I've, I've had long talks with about to Vance and, uh, Andrew chefs and these guys that are, I look up to that are friends. They've been very helpful. Uh, Mark Rubel, you know, uh, Neil, these guys have great advice on it and, recommendations so much of what i feel like people like me is because i'm very personable and and uh, you know after the record's done we stay in contact we stay friendly we stay in touch and i like that aspect of like i I make a point when people send me demos they want me to produce and they send me demos i don't really do much communication over email i say hey i'm a i'm really bad at bad at it but b can we talk on the phone? Because it to me, it's like you're sending this very personal song. And for me to write back and go, it's great. You know, you can read that a million ways. Like, he didn't put an exclamation point. It's, you know, blah, 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 blah. So I'd rather just call people. And I feel like the manager thing goes into that, too, where I like the fact that if someone wants to work with me, they can just call me and we just talk. And then we can do it. We decide to do it or not. It gets, you know, the money thing goes, you know, it can be a little awkward when you're discussing that in person. but. Cause I, I don't, I hate talking about money cause I don't do this for the money. But, uh, um, so that's the part about managers that I don't want to lose that. Even if I do get a manager, I want to be a- accessible. And I think that's why I've gotten as far as I have because it's all so personal, you know, but I do, there, there's a point now where it's like so hard to keep up with all the dates that are coming in and trying to juggle everything and the whole money thing and all the, you know, points and all this other junk that it would be nice to have a manager take care of a lot of that for you. Um, And so I've talked to a couple and I've been reached out to a couple and just nothing has felt right. I just go with my gut. Once something feels good, I'll do it. Here's a, a strange question. Do you think producers who don't engineer or who would prefer to have a, 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 an engineer on the session with them as opposed to doing it all themselves, do you think that those who are successful purposely reach out to hotshot engineers that don't have management because business-wise they may not be as savvy, but they still know they're going to get the quality out of them? I don't know. I I would hate to think that because uh, I, I, I'm i a, a glass half full kind of guy. <laughs> I don't see a lot of the evil. I, I want to see the good in everything as opposed to trying to find all the evil stuff. So to me, I think 
you hire someone because they you like what they do. Because, you know, to have someone in the room with you and the artist every day, that's way more meaningful than the couple extra hundred dollars or the the other stuff. You know, I'd rather pay a guy more money that I love having in the room than having a guy I can pay less money to and take advantage of because he's going to affect the artist. He's going to affect the band. He's going to affect this and that. So in, in my view, I would, that's what I would do. Not, not saying I'm sure other people do do what you're speaking of, but, um, I have yet to, I don't think I've ever felt that. It just occurred to me. I'm sure it happens. And uh, I'm just, I, sometimes I feel like the young, innocent kid, you know, going off to war or something like, I just don't believe, you know, what they, he does what, <laughs> you know, I know he does what to his assistant. Like I just, it's hard to believe, believe, but I know stuff like that happens, you know, but I just wonder, like, if you get a manager and then things start to really, you know, in your scheduling and financial world, that all starts to tighten up really nicely. If if producers are hesitant because they're like, oh, no, we got to deal with this manager. I don't want to deal with Well, that. I think it's not just producers. I think it's artists, too. You know, I think a lot of artists, once you, you know, I amazing. I've had the most amazing year this year uh, working with Elvis. And, you know, I, got, I won a Grammy, which is crazy. And I think... People automatically assume you're you're too expensive now, or you know, if or you have a manager, he's blah blah blah, he's unreachable or something. And it's not true, it's totally not true. But I think people, whether it's a producer, or an artist, is going to feel might feel that way too. Or the young band that's in that in your town that re- likes what you do, assume just assumes they can't do it. So I think it goes in all aspects of that too. Pitfall of success. Yeah. But it's not true, guys. <laughs> you can. You won a Grammy for which record? The Jason Isbell record won Best Americana Album. So I engineered that and, and co-mixed it. So I got a Grammy for that. And that was a Dave Cobb producer. Yeah, Dave one. Cobb. That was the first record I did with Dave. And that's the first record I did when I left Sun. And that's that's the record I left Sun, Sun for was to do that record with Dave. So I tell people it's all downhill from here. I left Sun. I do a record. I win a Grammy. And now it's all it's all downhill. <laughs> I've, I've peaked. I've peaked, Matt. Well, we're going to wrap it up here soon, but I want to ask you, you're, how old are you now? I'm uh, about, to, I'll be 30 in a couple months. So I'm 29. Okay. Okay. So you're 29 and you've had a real solid, uh, we'll call it audio upbringing. Yeah. I mean, you really, you really got um, conditioned for the job at Sun. Yeah. You, that really sets you up. And then transitioning to work with Dave Cobb, you've done a lot in a very condensed amount of time. So what would be your advice to, no matter the person's age, what is your advice based on the, your experiences thus far? Learn from as many people as you can. Assist as many people as you can. Put yourself in every situation that you can. I, I at Sun, I got to work with a lot of producers. I got to do stuff with Jim Dickinson. I got to do stuff with T Bone Burnett, Mark Needham, Mark Ronson, uh, a, just a bunch of great producers. And then I would start. I start to produce, and so I started doing things like that. And I started working with Dave and and all these. You know, I've done records with Vance Powell and stuff like that. So I've gotten to learn from. I've learned from every single person. And some people you learn how to not make a record or how to not produce or how to not handle a situation. And most of the time you learn how to do things and how to be. And you pick and choose the things you like from everybody and do your own thing, obviously. But I worked every single day pretty much since I started interning, even if we weren't 
working that day, I'd go in there and clean the studio. I'd go in there and, you know, mess with some tracks or something like that. I'd bug the engineer. I'd, I'd read a lot of great books. You know, there's all these great books. There's all these great things you can watch and talk to people and um, great producers you can talk to and bug and engineers and just, it's all I wanted to do. If I'm not in the studio, like I've had, I had two days off last week around the AES time and I was just freaking out because I haven't, I haven't not been in the studio for, you know, two days in a long time and I missed it. I got, I got to get back in there and record something or tweak, tweak something or do something. And, uh, Neil Capilino said this best. I'm going to steal it. Everything is an audition. The thing I did with Dave down at fame was supposed to be just a one day thing. recording this guy for Spotify. I didn't go down there thinking like, I'm going to go get a bunch of albums with Dave Cobb, but I went down there and did the job as best I could and, and had fun and was outgoing and, you know, I got, you know, fun to work with, I guess, where he decided then and there, I'm going to use this guy on this big project a couple months away. We didn't know each other really before then. And so everything is an audition. When I, when I was at Sun, T-Bone Burnett came in with John Mellencamp and they were, did a John Mellencamp record. We did it live to mono, and I met Dave Rowe there, who's a great upright bass player. We've stayed great friends and made a lot of records together. Mike Prasante was the engineer, and when they left, they said, if you want to move to L.A., we'd love to have you a part of the T-Bone camp. They never said, like, what it would be, whether I'd be an assistant or runner or, you know, inter- whatever engineer or whatever, but I just, I guess I did a good job and was good to be around at that session where they offered me that. Now, at that time, I still wanted to stay in Memphis. I wanted to do this thing at Sun. Even though I was only the assistant engineer, I knew there was a point where I would take over at Sun and I had these things I wanted to accomplish. So I didn't want to move to LA just yet. I was like 17 or something at the time. And I don't regret that for a minute. All I mean for people is that you can get down because you feel like nothing's changed in your situation, but you never know when that one little thing that you do like my four-hour session in fame, turns into, for now, two years of great work as an independent producer-engineer. So everything's an audition, and the more situations you put yourself in, the better you'll become, and the the more contacts you'll make, and the more um, impressions you'll reach to people that will call you again or think of you for something or, you know, or put you in a better situation later. If you had to describe your demeanor in the studio, no matter what your role, what would it be? Um, pleasing. <laughs> no, I, I think uh, I think people like to hire me because I don't get upset. I don't get angry. I don't yell. I don't throw things. I don't. Uh, if something's going wrong, you won't know it from me. I'm not in here cussing out the computer or the assistant or the Pro Tools rig. I'm acting like everything's fine. It's all calm. And a lot of, I try to make people laugh. I think laughter is a great thing in the studio to help get people at ease. Um, and you, you got to know when to be quiet and you got to know when to kind of be in the background, when to step in the foreground, if things are getting awkward or blah, 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 blah. But, but calm is really the main thing because things are going to go wrong in the studio. And the artist is always freaking out, you know, about if they're performing well and what this or that or money or time or whatever is going on or personal stuff and if they sense that from you then it's only going to add to their fear but if you're calm and everything's great it puts them at ease think about how much fun it is for us to make a record an artist only gets to do it once every like three or four years we get to do it every day you got to keep that in mind that this is special to you it's even more special for them because they only get to it's rare for them to get to do it 
And they're oftentimes like when they're working with me, we're in a famous location or a, you know, like RCAA or Phillips or Sun or somewhere. So it's, it's, it's very special for the artist. And so you can't treat it like it's a, a everyday thing for you. You have to treat it like it's very special too. And just, I just think I, I'm just very easygoing. I'm very patient. I think patience is a probably one of my best features. That patience, did it, did it come naturally? I think it came natural. My parents are really patient. I think I just uh, learned that. And the engineer I learned from is very patient. And then I've been in sessions where people aren't patient. And it's been, you know, it can work to your advantage, but oftentimes it can't because some people just need a minute to figure out what they want to do and to do it. You know, some people just can't perform right away. And so you have to be patient and then let them get there and then tell them when they got there because sometimes if it takes a while, they don't know when they've gotten there. Well, this is cool, man. So great to to speak with you. I'm I'm blown away by, like I mentioned earlier, the uh, the amount of experience you've squeezed in from 16 to almost 30. I mean, that's incredible, really. Well, thank you. I, I've I've very I hate the word blessed because social media has ruined that word for me. But I feel very blessed. I feel very lucky. I feel I just I wouldn't change anything. I just I love starting the studio as an assistant, as an intern and working. I love that. I mean, getting, going up the ranks. I wish more people got to do that now because it's a, it's an amazing experience and, and you never stop being the assistant. You know, you don't like become the producer and someone's like, I, I, I want a coffee. And you go, I'm the producer. I don't get fucking coffee. You still go get the artist coffee if they want it. I'll get my ass out of the chair and go get them whatever they want, you know? So the things you learn working your way up, you never, lose those things. You never forget those things. You never stop doing those things. If you own your own studio, you're still scrubbing the toilets. You're still getting making the coffee. You're still doing all these things. So I, I, I love how it all happened for me. Seems like you have taken ego and just removed it. I wouldn't go that far. <laughs> <laughs> just sending your, my bio to you felt gross. You know, I have to have someone else type that stuff up and like just make, you know, spell it correct. And because it's the hard, I, I can't talking about myself or accomplishments or something like that. It just it always feels awkward to me. So I'd rather just avoid it. But, but thank you. Thanks again for taking the time to stop in and be on the show. Yeah. Thank you, Matt. I will definitely uh, make a, a, a serious point of coming to Memphis and uh, spending a few days and hanging out. You better. We got Larry Crane coming down in, in a week or two. We get you down there, and, and uh, we'll make you do like a Naris thing, like a come meet Matt Boudreau. Oh, God. Be fun. <laughs> yeah, and, you it's, know, Jeff's here and uh, Boo Mitchell. There's some great studios, and you just you get it. No, no other places like Memphis uh, studio-wise. They're all, they all change the world in one genre or another, and they all, like, haven't changed since then. You know, like, Phil Sun is straight 1950s. Phillips is 1960s. I mean, there's shag carpet everywhere. Nothing has been changed. There's an old bar. All the bathrooms have powder rooms for the women because it was built in 1958. Uh, Royal, where all Al Green stuff cut is 1972, like you wouldn't believe it. Um, hasn't changed. Arden, of course, has always been, you know, hasn't been changed. It's just, uh, it's unreal when you come here and see it all. Memphis sounds like a, a lovely place to be. I love it. All right, man. Well, I'm going to let you go. Thanks, Matt. Your your podcast has been like the, I have to drive back and forth from Nashville so much and it's just going straight. 
and I hate listening to music in the car. So your podcast has made it most enjoyable. Oh man, uh, thank you. One. That's I seem to be good for the drives. People tell me I listen to you in the car all the time. <laughs> Better than saying I listen to you in the bath or something. Yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah, I listen to your podcast. It puts me to sleep each night. Yeah. So, well, cool, man. All right, thanks, Matt. All right, take care. You too, man. Have a good day. You too. See ya. Matt Ross Spang here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Great to talk to Matt. I've been meaning to get him on for a while, so it worked out just right. So hope you enjoyed it, but we're out of time. So let's thank everybody. I want to thank, of course, Matt Ross Spang, Cliff Truesdell, Chuck Smith, Cole Williams, and of course, we want to thank our sponsors, Gearsluts.com, Focal Monitors, Universal Audio and Audio Technica. And of course, I want to thank you. I appreciate the time you take to listen to me ramble. That's it. Take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at Gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out. <laughs> <laughs>